Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Film Is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Laura, she, her, and I am the literature expert. And my name is Danny, he, him, the film expert, self-appointed. That's right. And this week we're seriously excited to cover one of my new favorite series, the prolific Millennium series written by Stieg Larsson, the first book appearing in 2005, titled The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Ooh. And we're covering not the first adaptation that came out of Sweden, but David Fincher's, I would say classic? I don't know. Do you consider it a classic? Well, hey, no. it's a Fincher film. Every one of his films is a classic. We're 10 years away from the release of this film, so that might be a little too young to deem like it male, a classic. Maybe. But Meg, I feel like, is already considered a classic, though. Oh, that yeah, that last has year. the feel of it. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, so yeah, this movie, David Fincher's version of this movie came out in 2011. The American version, heck right. yeah. And I'm really excited to dig into this, because shockingly... I had never read any of these novels before we decided to cover it on the podcast. We decided to cover Girl on the Dragon Tattoo during the Christmas season. It's not technically a Christmas story, but it does take place in Sweden. And the whole tone of the novel feels very chilly. It's very wintry and snug. It's been really fun to read. It makes me feel like there's a little bit of snow outside, even though we live in L.A. Actually, I'm pretty chilly tonight, so yeah. it's a good night to cover this super dark content in a super beautiful place in the world where it snows a lot. Whenever I think of the snug Christmas moments, when there's a blizzard outside, but you're inside with a Ooh. fireplace on, a blanket around you, loved ones. A loved I, one to snuggle with. I always think of... David Fincher. Heck yeah. yeah. His films are known for being very warm and inviting. Just kidding. <laughs> just yeah. listen to just listen to an interview with him. He's not a snuggly person. Oh, he's hilarious. <laughs> he's hilarious, but he's not a snuggly person. Yeah. He comes off as a little bit sharp, but he's hilarious. Yeah, he, just he has, has very sharp, the driest humor. humor you could possibly mm-hmm. imagine. Um, yeah, well... Not that we wouldn't love to work with you, though. Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? He's David Fincher, yeah. uh, one of... The best working directors right now. I mean, Absolutely. Villeneuve is my favorite. I've mentioned that ad nauseum on this podcast. But what? David Fincher is probably number two or number yeah. three behind, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. Christopher Nolan is still still up there. Greta Gerwig. <laughs> yeah, Greta Gerwig, Barry Jenkins. Nia um, Nia, I've only seen one movie by Nia DaCosta, so jury's still out. Okay, We'll fine. see. <laughs> yeah, loved the movie that we did see, Candyman. Mm-hmm. That was two episodes ago, but yeah, this is the Christmas season of Film is Lit, and this movie was marketed as the feel-bad movie of Christmas. I love that. Back in 2011 when it came out. Yeah, what a great marketing campaign. Unfortunately, I don't think it really gelled with audiences because this movie didn't get a sequel. David Fincher wanted to make two more after this, and it just didn't happen. We've discussed this before when we were talking about Fight Club and Gone Girl. I think this is the third David Fincher movie that we're covering (laughs) on this pod. But yeah, go back. And it won't be the last because we're probably going to cover the social network. (laughs) Yes, we definitely are. But yeah, as we've discussed in those previous episodes, which are up on our podcast page, David Fitcher movies cost more than you think they would Mm -hmm. because he just pours money into the production, into getting top of the line talent in front of and behind the camera. And his shoots are extensive. They go on for a long time because he does, well, extensive coverage and he's infamous for doing a crazy amount of takes for even the smallest scenes. Mm -hmm. He has that reputation. He's a meticulous, precise director. Every single film he's made has been great except Mm -hmm. for Panic Room. I'm not a fan of Panic Room. And Alien 3 doesn't count. He's disowned that movie. The studio took that movie away from him 
in the editing room, so it doesn't really count as a David Fincher mm -hmm. film. So, yeah, Panic Room is the only Fincher movie that I don't outright love. So that kind of gives you a glimpse into my thoughts on the film. But yeah, let's get into our personal journeys with the book and then the movie. Laura, go ahead. As I said, I had never read any of these books. And I had found all three of the original Stieg Larsson trilogy. I believe there are six books out right now that are technically the Lisbeth Sander storyline but the other ones have been written by someone else. So the, they don't count as the core three. Unfortunately, Stieg Larsson actually died after he had handed in the manuscripts for all three, those being Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. I kind of knew the backstory with Stieg Larsson. I had found these three novels at thrift stores over the years, but they were so thick they kind of just sat on my shelf. They are bricks. And, yeah, bricks. especially number three. And I think that, in a way, was intimidating for me. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I had just never heard anybody review these books. I had never had anybody tell me to read them or nobody ever recommended, like, oh, you can't live without reading these. And so I just kind of thought, well... They're contemporary fiction. I don't tend to read a lot of contemporary fiction, at least not until we started this podcast. And so I just kind of let them sit and gather dust. And I am not kidding you. I read the first book in three days. I was done in three days. And I started this trilogy about a month ago because I was honestly expecting for this book to take me that long to read. But within three days, I finished the first book. Within like five days, I finished the second book, and now I'm actually struggling to get through the third book because unfortunately, it completely pales in comparison to the first two. I don't quite know what happened, but it's like I'm halfway through it, and I haven't learned any new information that I didn't already know in the first two books, which is kind of strange because this book, this first book, is so fucking good. It's so good. I don't think I've ever read a detective novel that just grips you. It's so good. It's it's got everything you want to see. It's a there's a cold case. There's high stakes. It's dark. Very there's... sexy. <laughs> sexy? Yeah. Blinkwist is. Oh yeah, Blinkwist is kind of a yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of very explicit content. And trigger warning, by the way, that kind of brings up a criticism that I, I have of the film a little bit. But yeah, very dark, sort of unflinching representation of sexual abuse, uh, sexual violence against women. And it came out in 2005. This is pre-Me Too movement. You know, this is pre a lot of public feminist movement. So I just got really sucked into this world. I absolutely love this books. I will absolutely read the first and second novels again. I'm just waiting for that time where I've kind of put some distance between me and the first two novels to pick them up again. Cause I'm absolutely, I'm in love with this trilogy and I'd never seen the movie until last night. And it was, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I'm interested of hearing your uh, criticisms because I think when it came to the graphic violence the movie pretty much ripped it straight from the page so i'd be i'm interested to go into that discussion yeah. i don't have a technical criticism of it i just think that there maybe should have been a little bit more of a warning in the beginning of the movie maybe Ooh. <laughs> I, it went further than i thought the movie would i'm surprised that the movie's rated r it, that's what I'm I'm surprised this didn't get slapped with yeah. the nc 17 or edited down to match that r rating Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think we're referencing the one rape scene. Yeah. That we're, and that's... But also, there's a lot of nudity with Rooney Mara and... I mean, of course, you never see penis. You always see boobs and, like, butts. That's the thing with but... the, the MPA. Now, they're called the MPA. Not well, there's the obviously MP... sex. Sexist. Right. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's upsetting. You it's can just... show, you know, breasts, but... Yeah. But if you show a lot of penis, then you get slapped. Yeah, I mean, that, that is sexism. Yeah. Like, if you want a better definition, I don't yeah. know where to look. But anyway, but but it is it is very explicit. And it's not the scenes between 
Lisbeth and Daniel Craig that I necessarily have a an issue with because that is consensual. However, being someone who has obviously not been affected by any sexual violence to this level, even I was like, I, I might have appreciated like a little bit more of a, a heads up that the movie was going to go that far into actually depicting what happens to Elizabeth. Maybe maybe just a statement in the beginning of the movie. I think if the movie came out recently, there would be yeah. exactly that. But, but I mean, on a streaming service, I would say like maybe flag that. Yeah. If you've never seen the movie, I, I would have appreciated that. But that's really what I was talking about when I say I, I had a criticism right. of that. Yeah. Speaking of the MPA, it's just, yeah, I can't imagine them watching that scene and then giving them an R. I mean, maybe this did get an end scene 17 in the original cut. I, it didn't come up in my research, but perhaps yeah, that happened. Have. Yeah, well, my journey. So I distinctly remember when the novels came out 2005, right? All three came out at the same time. Is that correct? Or right no, around the same they, time? Yeah, they did space them out, but he finished them. He had been working on them concurrently, uh-huh. handed in the manuscripts, and then they kind of spaced them out since he died before the first one was even published. Right. And we're going to talk about that. He died under mysterious circumstances, right? Um, I After reading into it, I don't think he did. There are some conspiracy theories, but I think ultimately it was pretty provable that it was his poor health. Gotcha. Um, I thought I I thought there was a conspiracy. There, there is, but I personally don't think that there's enough. Gotcha. Evidence to suggest that. Whereas there's evidence that he was smoking sixty cigarettes a day. He was having ten cups of coffee a day. He was eating junk food all like. Unfortunately, he died at fifty years old, and I think that he had already had heart issues Mm. and and he had a heart attack and he gotcha he died we can talk about the conspiracy theories later i personally don't think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he was but you know it's always within the realm of possibility i suppose we gotta investigate it i'll be i did i did no i'll be (laughs) tattoo lady and you can be bloomquist in 40 years we have to go back and investigate his cold case okay but yeah back to my journey so i distinctly remember the pop culture phenomenon that was these books when they came out when we were in fifth, sixth grade. Obviously, I wasn't reading them during that time, uh, but my mom was, and my mom's friends and uh, adults around me. I could see it was everywhere in airports. I saw people talking about it all the time, but I've never been a reader up until this podcast. So even after that period of my life, when I matured and got older, I'm like, I'm not going to read it. I just didn't have an interest. But I did have an interest when it was announced that David Fincher was directing. I became a hardcore Fincher fan even before I was into film in general, just because Fight Club has always been such a big part of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, My brothers introduced that film to me, and it's one of my favorite films of all time. And so coming off of the social network, David Fincher was making this. Now the social network, another one of the greatest films ever made. I can't wait to cover that film too. Mm So I was pumped for this movie. It came out my senior year of high school and it came out, yeah, Christmas during that time. So I was busy with like college essays, submitting in and Mm. applying to colleges and and I had sports too. So I didn't see a lot of movies in my senior year of high school, at least the first part of the semester. So before you got into BU, early admittance. Yep, go Terriers. Terriers. Yeah, but I missed it and... I'm not proud of this, but, you know, it's important to learn from your past and to admit your faults and just know that I've grown, okay? <laughs> okay. I watched this on one of those sites where you can watch movies. Oh, you can stream I, that's movies not what I was expecting And you not to say. Pay, pay for them. So <laughs> oh, I'm God. not proud of it. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. Uh, I will pay all the fees if any cops are listening. I'll, I, tr- I, we have the DVD. I've paid we'll for it. We'll just give us David Fincher's address and we'll send him a check. Yeah, for the rental. Yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the rental. We won't stalk him. Yeah, so I watched it in kind of standard low quality on one of those sites. And I don't remember the exact situation, but I remember not being focused. So I was watching the movie, but I think I was distracted. So the first time I watched this movie and I didn't get the full experience and that was my fault. I just wasn't engaged for whatever reason, probably the streaming quality. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, I kind of had a so-so opinion on I still liked the movie, but I'm like, oh, that's one of David Fincher's lesser movies. I've loved every single one of his movies until this, besides Panic Room, so this is probably on the lower end of the list. But over the years, I find myself going back to the trailer of this movie that was released because this famous trailer edited by Travis Abels, and it has a piece of score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that Our is boys. yes that is not in the movie that was made specifically for the trailer. It's the, still the same theme, but it's a much different sound. It's much more upbeat, and the the trailer is considered a long trailer. It's almost four minutes long, mm. but it kind of details the whole setup of the movie without getting into heavy spoilers. That trailer, I search it on YouTube, listeners. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo long trailer. I think it's one of the best pieces of marketing ever released. And then it has that excellent tagline at the end, the feel-bad movie of Christmas, which yeah. is so badass. Yeah. We loved it. But as we alluded to earlier, that marketing kind of backfired because it didn't get the box office that it wanted, that the producers wanted and the budget was so high so guess what the budget was oh i don't i mean i'm gonna say a hundred million dollars okay well 90 million oh, but okay. well it, it's a fincher film it's so, a fin- right yeah. exactly my point is that the social network you would think uh, obviously that movie is amazing and very well made but you wouldn't think that it costs 50 million dollars to make that movie but yeah. it's david fincher did so, you say 50 50, five zero. It sounded like you said 15, so I oh, just yes. wanted to clarify. Yeah, five zero. So this movie costs 90 million, which is, I think, a lot for a thriller, mm. a murder mystery thriller. It's almost double what the normal amount for a movie of this size and subject matter. Sure. So it made 239 million at the box office, which you can say, okay, that's above the budget. That's more than double. But here's the thing. That's not factoring in advertising costs. And David Fincher does a lot of advertising for his movies, too. Mm. And while they did make a small profit, it wasn't enough to garner sequels. Bummer. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously we're so far out. We're more than 10 years almost out. uh, Almost 11 years out from the premiere of this movie. And I am really impressed how self-contained this is. Yes. Dune took a big swing by, within the first like three minutes, like during the credits, they say part one of Dune. That was a huge swing. Because obviously, as we've talked about before many times, we didn't know if there was going to be a sequel of Dune produced. Yeah. And so something that I was concerned about going into this viewing was I knew that it had not made enough to get a sequel. And since there, this was a trilogy and I had read the second book and I really liked it and I thought it really, it actually gives you a lot more understanding and depth into Elizabeth's background. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting there to be a lot of loose ends that would have left this story open for a sequel. But I'm really happy that it actually tied everything up. Yeah. It's very self-contained, and I don't feel like I need a second movie, even though it would have been great. And I actually, that's what I liked most about the book, was the murder mystery. Yes. And as I'll admit to you right now, the things that I think dragged the book down for me was everything that wasn't the murder mystery. Everything yeah. having to do with Venestrom and setting up Millennium. Yeah. I'm going to be very diplomatic in how I say this. I agree with you about the murder mystery. I, lo- I read the book just recently for this podcast, listened to it. It's narrated by Simon Vance, the same guy who narrated. No way! Yeah, the... that guy gets around. Dune. Dune. Yeah. And 007. Yeah. He reads a lot of the 007 books. Yeah. That's so, so funny. Same guy. Uh, he pronounces all the Swedish words correctly from what I've researched. And I was enthralled by the main mystery. But the book is. 600 plus pages so when you read it in three days that's more than 200 pages per day listener that's how i couldn't put it down yeah i just couldn't put it down and i that also is... had <laughs> surprise i'm starting a new job on monday tomorrow i'm really excited but i had like nothing to do all day so i was basically just sitting and reading yes. <laughs> at my old job right. so but i was surprised at how much of the book is not the main mystery which yeah. is why i think 
the movie is an improvement and we can get right now into the main thing that we do on this podcast, which is comparing and contrasting the book between the movie. So something the movie does wisely, in my opinion, is focus mainly on the murder mystery, not actually murder mystery of right. Harriet spoilers. Vanger. Yeah. Oh yeah, full spoilers on this podcast. Whoops. No, I mean, we've said it enough. <laughs> yeah. If this is your first episode, we're going to be spoiling everything, both in the book and the movie. Should be yeah. obvious, but there it is. It's said. All right, so let's get into it. Let's compare and contrast the book. So yeah, do you want to talk about how the movie more kind of shores up events? and? Absolutely. The book and the movie open very similarly, where we find out that Mikhail Blomqvist has been successfully indicted and charged with libel. So Mikhail has to pull back from the magazine for which he's working because his, his credibility has been destroyed. And go to prison. In and the go book. To, in the book, yeah. In the book, he has to serve like three months in prison. Yeah. So during this, he gets called by a lawyer who represents this other older Swedish magnate named Henrik Vanger. And he sort of offers this interesting deal where Mikhail is hired on paper to write his memoirs. However, what he really wants Mikhail to investigate is the murder slash disappearance of his niece, Harriet, 40 years prior. So that's where we open up the book and the movie. I agree with you that the book loses focus because a lot of Mikhail's storyline ends up covering him going back to the millennium and trying to make that paper successful. That stuff I think is definitely a little bit meandering. Mm -hmm. And the mystery of the novel is so good. That stuff I think ends up unfocusing yeah. the writing a little bit. And since it's such, if it was a really short book, I would say it's okay. Because it is interesting. Like, I found it interesting to read. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of exposes a lot of what we're experiencing now is just, like, a lack of watchdogs and a lack of respect for the journalistic art yeah. <laughs> of reporting. And not only reporting, but news reporting in a an objective way. So that stuff is really interesting. But what we really want to focus on is the mystery that takes place in Hedestadt. On Hedelby Island. Yeah, I think my expectations were just misplaced because I saw the movie first. So reading the book, I thought his whole mix-up libel case with Venestrom, I thought that was just a setup for putting him in a place where he could step away from Millennium and sure. go on this case. I, I had no idea that it is a solid quarter of the book. And plus, I already knew the mystery, so I, I just think... Sure. I, I wish I read the book first... Uh, can't turn back time. Yeah. It, it is what it is. That's why I have such a hard line, though. Because, yeah. Because, I mean, if the book is better, you'll never get that back if you watch the movie first. If the book isn't better, then you always have that glimmer of hope that the movie will be better. Yes. And it fixed some things. So that's why I have a really hard line. I think this is an interesting case because it was fun to watch this movie 10 years ago or 9 years ago, then to read the book and then to watch it again for this podcast to have a new time has passed i have a new critical lens mm -hmm. and I, I love the story obviously fincher owes a lot to stieg larson but yeah i think the movie um improve improves in every way it's a long movie it's 158 minutes but I just today, as of this recording, came out of a screening of House of Gucci, which is the exact same length mm. as Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, 158 minutes. Now, I liked House of Gucci, but it felt an hour longer than Yikes. The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo did. Yeah. Like, you felt the length of House of Gucci. You really don't feel the length at all with this. Fincher is just, no, his movies are edited to a T, masterful editing. He works very closely with the editors. Fincher is known on set for being super meticulous and a micromanager, but he's like that in the post-production process too. He has a visual effects background, so he even micromanages in the visual effects yeah. too. He's always in the room. People, Some people have a tough time working with him twice because he's just such a hard 
insanely dedicated but workaholic type of, of person. Right. But he works very closely with editors Kirk Baxter and Angus Wall. So a year prior to this film, they won Best Editing for Social Network. Well-deserved. Nice. Yeah. They were nominated a year later for this film, and they were not expected to win. They were, you know, fifth in line on Gold Derby, the site that places all the odds and all the winners every Oscar year, uh -huh. and they ended up winning again. I think well-deserved. I know you have a note about this, but the pace at which the movie moves is so quick, and they get into it, so it just keeps on moving and moving and moving. The two and a half hour plus runtime just flies by for me. I think their second Oscar in a row was well-deserved, but let's hear what you had to say about that. Well, I just have a, a note about the first maybe five cuts of the movie, maybe a little bit more, but the thing that I actually liked about the length of the book is I was so on board for just a ride I had no idea where it was heading mm -hmm. no idea and and I kind of liked the asides because it honestly made me read faster I was like okay mm. this this isn't uh, I get it Millennium Burger yeah Blomkvist is a ladies man like ah oh, just like come on let's let's move it along but but it made me excited to get to the deeper stuff and in the first like few cuts of this movie i felt like they weren't letting the beats quite land they would have a moment between burger and blumquist or blumquist and froda the lawyer and it would just cut and I kind of, I just wanted I me mean, just like two more seconds of like, let me understand why this scene is important. Mm. It got a lot better. I'm not saying that this whole movie is devoid of that mm -hmm. ponderous tone. Y you feel how dark things are in yeah. a lot of ways. Like they let the darkness kind of like seep in, especially by the end when we get into Martin's dungeon when you start figuring out who the bad guy is, yeah. like all of those scenes are horrifying. And and same with Bierman. Those scenes are like really well paced. I just felt like right in the beginning, I was like, ooh, scene, cut, scene, cut, scene, cut. Like I, I, it didn't let me understand, even though I had read the book, I was like, oh, what's the importance of this scene? Because it was just like, so that was my only note. Yeah, I'm just in awe of his direction. I did feel, actually feel that in the beginning of how quickly things were going, perhaps too quickly, but it's that feeling you get when you're super excited and you can't catch your breath. It's, mm. it's not, it wasn't like a bad feeling to me. It was like, I, I was, I couldn't breathe, but it was out of pure excitement sure. and being sucked into the movie. Yeah, but yeah, they really, it's like night and day between the introduction of, of Henrik and Blomquist between the book and the movie. Because yeah. in the book, it's a, it's a full-on chapter when Henrik is describing in detail his family and slowly, methodically setting up the case that right. he actually wants Blomquist to work on. In the movie, it is like he meets him and then... He's like, He's I want you to, I want yeah. you to catch Harriet's killer. Right. Yeah. And, and I think in the book, obviously we don't have visual cues like pictures. Yes. Because in the movie, it is a lot easier. Bloomquist, when he sets up in his little cottage, has a wall that he sticks pictures to. So mm -hmm. it's super visual. You can see who we're talking about. You start making connections. And it's kind of a running joke through both the book and the movie about how like kind of labyrinthine their family tree is and mm -hmm. how like fucked up it is and how nobody talks to each other like that's kind of a joke but I think in the book it was like really important to like step everyone through those things like yeah a, you kind of had to hit it a couple times to really and I think that also added scenes for example Blungfist has an affair or like a little like fling I wouldn't call it an affair it's a fling with Martin's cousin Cecilia Cecilia thinks and that just like doesn't really need to be in there it helps cement the idea that Blungfist is a ladies man but it's like another person that you're sleeping with okay I get it it's funny right? that in the movie he's played by James Bond because in the book this guy is James Bond just he yeah. sleeps with like yeah. every woman he, he, <laughs> he gives someone a side glance and they're like they wake up in bed like oh yeah. they slept together it is pretty funny like he doesn't really have to try much but speaking of Daniel Craig what a fantastic cast this is and 
I so wish that David Fincher could direct a Bond film because I feel like there are so many scenes in this movie where Daniel Craig is doing more investigative work than James Bond ever does in 25 movies. Yeah. And and there's a lot of tension where I feel like, sure, maybe he doesn't physically... Actually, he's in peak Bond fitness in this film. Like, he yeah. is fucking slaying. Well, fun fact, Daniel Craig was slated to shoot Skyfall, but for whatever reason... It, Skyfall's production got delayed by six months. Okay. So Craig was in Bond yeah. shape before the production of you this film. You can tell. And, He's sleek. And Fincher actually asked him to gain a little bit of fat before they actually started shooting. So right. Craig had like three weeks to just down food to get a little bit that of fat on bastard. him. And he still looks fantastic yeah, he's, in this movie. he's still like peak fitness. Oh my god. Yeah. But see, like, he's not in the physical confrontations that Bond is in. Right. But he's such a great investigator. It's so much fun to watch this and be like, Bencher could have directed such a fantastic Craig Bond movie. The thing about that's interesting because Fincher is one of those directors who has been approached by studios for these big budget movies, these franchise movies. So Disney approached him about Star Wars and Fincher said no because I'd want oh, complete yeah. creative control. There's been talks, but it's never happened about Bond, but it it would never happen just because Fincher is just one of those guys that it's like, it's either all me or not me at right. all. Mm -hmm. And James Bond is just too big. Yeah, of there, a... there are so many people who are in, in control of the image yeah. of the franchise. I get it. It's, it's the Broccoli's, oh, the producers. A, what a heartbreak. But at the same time, like he got Daniel Craig for this movie, and I think he's the perfect cast. Oh, agree. I think this entire cast is incredible. Christopher Plummer as Henrik Vanger inspired. And it reminds me of Knives Out, where they're both together in the same movie again and, yes. and in very similar situations yes and speaking of the cast lore it's been 40 minutes and we have not mentioned lisbeth oh shit <laughs> that's true played by the wonderful rooney mara she was nominated for an oscar best actress for this role yeah she did sweet. not win the only oscar that this movie won was best editing which we already mentioned but who yeah won over her for best actor i forget exactly who i think it was meryl streep for the iron lady she has enough Get yeah out of i here, know meryl she, it was but yeah it was also <laughs> nominated for best cinematography with jeff cronenweth who shot all of Fincher's films in the past. It's beautiful. Uh, most most film of his films. And best sound editing and sound mixing, which is now one category, uh, just best sound. But it was separate in 2012. Amazing cast. Let's talk about Lisbeth. Let's get into the big differences between the book and the movie. So in your opinion, Lore, was Rooney Mara's performance a good interpretation of the character on the page. Yeah, I think it was. I think she did a really great job. My only note is that because the book, and actually I would say the first two books, take so much time into making her unsympathetic at first, but then like really showing the reader how she deserves to be this way and going into her background so much that like you can't judge anybody's reaction to the trauma in their lives mm -hmm. because everybody's going to react differently. And Lisbeth is someone who has had so much intense trauma. She's been so unlucky, so unloved, so violated and mistreated and every single boundary of hers has been broken and violated that it's really interesting to see what Stieg Larsson is trying to do with that character. I think the movie, because it's just one movie and because it had to be slightly commercially accessible, I think that they changed her character just slightly to make her a little bit more likable yes. throughout the entire thing. It's subtle, but more likable <laughs> Yeah. in the movie. Yeah. What did you think? I think... Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think she's pretty unlikable at the start of the book. Intentionally so. You can kind of see what Stieg Larson was doing. But I think she has a few too many quips in the book. In the movie, screenwriter Steve Zalian, who wrote 
Schindler's List, won an mm. Oscar for that. Uh, he wrote this movie. I think he wisely takes a lot of those quips out and just makes Lisbeth, instead of saying something funny, she just doesn't say anything at all. She mm. just ignores people, and that's her character mm. a bit. I, I think that's funnier, and that's kind of a little bit more traditional. It makes you like her a little bit more. She, I, I think, had a bunch of one-liners uh, in the book that I'm like, this kind of, speaking of James Bond, feels like a James Bond thing. Uh-huh. I think she says something to Martin before she slams him with a, a golf club in the book. Oh, she's like, I didn't even remember that. She's like, hey, only I can touch him. And then oh, like, yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. Whereas in the movie, she doesn't say anything. She just says, hey. And then it, it's analogous for the movie as a whole. It's just kind of the book clipped. Yeah. <laughs> Very much yeah, clipped yeah. down. Her performance when she gets vengeance on Bierman in his apartment when she has the heavy eyeshadow over yeah. her face. It, Similar to Black Swan. Yes. Yeah. A nightmare fuel. And her delivery of the line, you know, most people don't know they're crazy. Don't worry. With me, it's true. Yeah. I am crazy. That not, not in the book. Such a great line delivery. Such a great line. There are great one-liners in here too in the movie that are not in the book. Yeah, I agree. And and going back to how they opened her character up a lot quicker, I think that they gave her a lot of really nice moments between the people that she does trust. Yes. It takes us so long in the books to get to a scene where she even trusts her original caretaker, Palmgren. Because when we find out about why she's eventually transferred to Bierman, we actually think that he's dead. And we don't find out that he's not dead until like book two. Oh, I didn't I didn't know he was dead. I just thought he was so either he's in, in a, a coma. coma. Okay. Right. So he has a stroke like in the movie. She finds him. He goes into a coma. And then while he's in the hospital, the doctors are like, listen, he's not going to make it. So yeah. she leaves and never turns back. And then in the second book, we find out that he actually pulled through. He's still severely suffering from like he, he doesn't have motor skills and he can't really talk very well. But she finds out that he's not dead. And so she goes back and he, she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I was told that you were going to die. So yeah. I just walked away to like cut off my emotions. So it takes two books for us to get a scene like that for her. Oh, interesting. So then in the movie, they open her up into having that continued relationship with him, playing chess and checking in with him. And I think another way that they did that really quickly, like you said, clipped her character, but made her a little bit more lovable. I really love the line that they gave her when she walks into a room and she's greeting someone and she goes, hey, hey. I think that was a really nice little turn on her character. Like we know that she feels safe when she says that. Yeah. When we were watching the movie, I thought that was so endearing. But I turned to Danny and I was like, this is the way that they, this is the right way to do something like that. Like, it's not a catchphrase. Yeah. But it it does signal that she's in a different space. Like, she feels like she's safe versus what we saw in Dr. Sleep, where they tried to force the poor Rebecca Ferguson into (laughs) making high there work. And it just didn't work the entire movie. But she said it like six times. And it, it didn't go, it didn't support her character in any way it just ended up making it seem like lady stop trying to make stop trying to make fetch work <laughs> yes yeah, stop try, trying to make high there work <laughs> yeah. you can't sit with us so anyway yeah. yeah i just thought they did a great job fleshing out her character and make she's still obviously intensely affected by her background but i i almost like that we don't even get into what she calls all the evil in the first book that's not even brought up in the movie yeah which they very easily could have done to tee up a second movie but they didn't and i think that was smart (laughs) yes agreed although i will say the portion of the book where they're talking about the backstory between palmgren and lisbeth sander i think is a great instance of something a book can do that movies usually can't do, which is short little vignettes that tell a long story in a very condensed amount of time. I Mm -hmm. think that's the one exception of the book, that something that's outside the mystery that is very well done. It's set up that at first, you know, she's assigned Pomgren as her ward because she doesn't have anyone else in her life. She's trepidatious in the beginning, but then... She starts going over to Palmgren's uh, every Christmas and Palmgren is slowly giving her more freedom and that act of giving her freedom establishes respect and they both respect each other, but it's not really love, but it kind of turns into love. But at the end of the day, they still have a, have a professional relationship. All that is... Familial gonna, love. Yes. Yeah. Like he becomes her surrogate father, but 
I think it's written in a way where you can understand how that relationship has come to be. Because Lisbeth is very standoffish, doesn't communicate with anyone outside of her own interests. So like even her relationship with Bloomquist, she's more focused on the case at hand and then not uses him for sex, but I mean, she flat out admits that she doesn't want to have a relationship with him. It's only until the end of the book that she realized that she does have feelings for him. And the very last scene is her making a fool out of herself, going to his place to give him a gift. Yeah. Which I, I love how the movie ends with that yeah. too. It's such yeah. a great, when it ends, you're like, oh wow, that's where it's ending. Damn, she didn't. Yeah, she gets ignored again. She yeah. gets shoved to the side. He lied to her and her view of the world is reconfirmed. That yeah. That's what people do to her because she doesn't matter. Right. Which is really sad. I mean, it's not a happy note to end on, but at the same time... That's Fincher, baby. Well, yeah, but, but at the same time, it's like, you know what, a, I guess a lesser movie would have done or if they were definitely confirmed to do a second movie or something, I guess they probably would have had Blumfist see her yeah. and be like, oh shit. And then like the movie ends like without them having a conversation or something and her just giving him a look like, I fucking knew it, you bastard, or something like that. Yeah. Hoping to resolve it in the second movie, but he doesn't even see her and that's what's so fucking heartbreaking yeah. about that ending oh my god it's absolutely heartbreaking but yeah Rooney Mara she did get nominated for an Oscar but she did come under fire by a lot of Swedes for her Swedish accent because yeah. yes this is an American produced film but it takes place in Sweden just like the story does just like the original movie does and stars Swedish characters from Sweden right. but they speak English but ha all have Swedish accents except for Ish. yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's the American version Swedish-ish <laughs> yes Swedish fish accents uh, they all have Swedish fish accents except for Daniel Craig based on my research apparently he attempted to do a Swedish accent but said this wasn't working and kind of made the decision on his own to just do his regular English accent so he's supposed to be Swedish even though he has an English accent it's definitely weird because it's set up like it starts in London. Right, but then it's Stockholm. But it is Stockholm. Yeah. That threw me off because I thought that what they were going to do was that Blumfist was going to be Daniel Craig, who was an investigative journalist in London. And then this opportunity in Sweden yes. would be offered to him and he would then go to Sweden and that's where he would meet Lisbeth and Vanger and all of the characters in the novel. I think they still could have done that because a fun twist that the movie makes, which I didn't see coming, which I really liked, is that Harriet in the book is found in Australia. That's something that the movie really does well is it kind of compresses the storyline where after they figure out that she's still alive, they still don't know where she is. That happens in the movie as well. But instead of going on this like secondary hunt for her because they still have to literally have to search the entire world <laughs> to figure out where she is, they kind of put the puzzle pieces together and realize like, oh, she's actually living under her cousin's name in London. So right. it would actually be really smart to have them begin in London and then come back and be like, oh shit, she was in London the whole time. We were in the same city. Yes. Like that would have been cool. And I think it would solve the problem of Daniel Craig's, not problem, but explain Daniel Craig's accent. He could even have the name Mikhail Blomqvist and have family who's from Sweden or like his parents could be from Sweden or something, but he grew up in London. Like that's an easy background for him. Yeah. And it's kind one of like, line. Just right. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, it's, it's easy for me to get to Stockholm because I have family there or something like that. Or like, I grew up in London. That's why I talk like this. Right. Or something like that. <laughs> but then the other thing, so when we were watching the movie, I was confused because love me some Robin Wright, but her Laura. accent, I was just like, where are you supposed to be from poor woman she sounds like speaking of house of gucci she sounds like lady gaga father son yeah, and house of gucci it's not great she, and what i wish if this were produced it but you know what i guess my hope is kind of underwritten by the fact that house of gucci was made yeah. but i would hope that we live in a society now where american directors can say okay, we have an entire movie that's going to take place in Sweden. Let's do it with either Swedish actors who are speaking in English, or we do Swedish actors speaking Swedish and just have subtitles. 
I feel like American audiences can handle that in a lot of ways. And it's more authentic because it was confusing sometimes where I'm like, is this character Swedish speaking English, which a lot of Swedish people do? Or is this an American slash English actor trying to do a really poor Swedish accent, and now I can't figure out what their background is. Well, yeah. It takes me out of the movie. Case in point, Inglorious Bastards, made in 2009, 70% of that movie, subtitled. Right, exactly. So they could have done that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. my point. It, it's so much more authentic. You allow stars and actors who are from different countries a broader market, and... I think that audiences are there now. Yes. At this point, just make a movie like that. Because again, love me some Robin Wright, but what was she doing? That feels like a glaring miscast. Oh, completely agreed. Like when she came, the minute she came on screen and started talking, we both looked at each other and laughed because it's that bad. You had mentioned when talking about Harriet in Australia versus in the movie. So now we've arrived at the next big change that the film makes. In the book, Blomquist and Lisbeth go to Anita in London, and then they find out that Anita communicates to someone in Australia. It can only be Harriet. So Blomquist goes to meet Harriet in Australia and meets her for the first time. The big change that the movie makes is that Bloomquist has multiple conversations with who he thinks is Anita in London, but the whole time he's talking to Harriet. So all those scenes, not in the book at all. This is a complete new edition. I did not see it coming, and I loved it. Yeah, I think it's a great way, as you said, to condense that whole storyline. So instead of just going to Anita in London and then Australia, they just go to London, and, and that's it. It's genius, because not only does it condense the story by a lot. Yeah. A whole investigation. But it adds a new facet to the story of the investigators communicating with the victim the whole time. Yeah. That's very unique. I can't think of another story that that does it like this. Another mystery where the person you're looking for is right under their nose like the whole time. Oh, I'm sure it's been done before, but it's smart. Yes. It's really, really smart. Done like this where they're like actively interviewing someone. Because, oh yeah, people disguise themselves as other people. That's been done before. But what I'm getting at is that the story kind of changes, right? It starts as a murder mystery looking into the disappearance of Harriet and then morphs into, well, the whole reason Lisbeth and Blunquist get together is they find Harriet's notebook and realize that the numbers are actually Bible verses that reference murders throughout Sweden. So it kind of comes this Scooby-Doo type yeah. uh, ragtag team looking into a serial killer. So yeah, like even when they find out that Martin is the killer, but there's still a lot of story to go. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the movie wisely after Martin dies, then it gets straight to Harriet and then... There's about 10 minutes of Lisbeth doing something with bank accounts. I'm actually kind of confused about that. that. But it, yeah, so that, yeah, that we but, can talk about a little bit because it, yes, yeah. it's maybe only a weakness. Yeah, it's only about 10 minutes though, and then it's done. The movie's over. Whereas the book, I'm sorry, it just climaxed so early, and there was in my audiobook three hours left. And I'm like, how is there, how, how? And it just kept on going on and on for me, really soured the experience. I think the movie just kind of wisely makes it 25 minutes and we're done, mm-hmm. whereas the book goes on. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I I just really enjoyed the writing. I didn't mind it continuing. I think a lot of the, the rest of it is like bringing down... I can't say Venestrom. Venestrom's empire. Yeah. But yeah, we can talk a little bit about the bank account thing. So it was interesting that... The movie used that as Salander kind of setting up Venestrom by posing as someone who was like working for him to drain accounts. Yeah. That's not really how the book goes because she's actually just straight up stealing money from him. Yeah. (laughs) She steals like three billion Kronor and keeps it (laughs) because she's just like, this guy's a piece of shit. He's got a lot of money and I know where it is. So like, I'm just 
gonna steal it. And, and that's kind of where the second book opens. The case is finished, she has all this money, and she's like, bye! So I don't know if they had to introduce that at all. I guess I don't understand plot-wise why it was important for her to plant more evidence against Venestrom than that 10-minute block of her sort of traveling around the country and moving money into different accounts doesn't really do much. Yeah, I got it as... So they set up in the beginning that Bloomquist published libelous material against this guy, but that Venestrom is a crook. And I interpreted the last 10 minutes as Lisbeth draining his accounts knowing that he was a crook and that once his accounts were drained that people other crooks would come after him and kill him which is exactly what happened Uh i didn't get that until the second viewing my first viewing i was super confused i was even confused a little bit the second time in the end her draining the accounts doesn't really have any weight in the plot line other than the fact that he gets murdered by another criminal overlord. Of, of the movie you're talking about? Yeah. I, I got it as, it is a payoff to the setup of the beginning of the movie. I just wish it was a little less confusing as my note. I'm not the brightest bulb in the bunch, but I it was tough to grasp onto those final 10 minutes. After, especially after watching two hours and 20 minutes of movie, your brain is a little bit fried by that time. So to tack that on at the end um, was a little much. So yeah. that's that's a criticism I have. But the final big difference between the film and the book I wanted to bring up, we kind of glossed over it when talking about Harriet, the murderer, the serial killer, Martin. So in the book, he's barely there. He is about two or three scenes with Bloomquist where he pops in very quickly. But in the movie, he plays an active role as someone who welcomes Bloomquist in, played by the wonderful, versatile Stellan Skateboard, <laughs> our favorite uh, Stellan Skarsgård. He plays Martin Vanger, so he is a prominent figure in the film. And I think Fincher is self-aware. I think the casting directors are also self-aware. Stellan Skarsgård just emits this aura of creepiness and he feels like a threat. That's why he's such a great villain in all the movies he, that he's... What else is he a villain in? Goodwill Hunting. He's kind of a villain in that. The, I don't even know who's in that. Yeah, he, he's not like a traditional villain. Dune, obviously. Okay. Yes, well, Dune, <laughs> Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, Melancholia. Uh, oh, he's in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. He's not a villain in that, but he's kind of a creepy side character as well. I think... Fincher is aware. You're you're on to Martin. At least I was the first time I watched it. Not it's hard no- to tell because I already knew that he was right. guilty. So it's yes. hard to. Well, I was kind of on to him, but as we've already, I wasn't on to him in the book. Oh yeah. Oh but yeah. No. I was gonna no, say I think Steve no. Larson does a great job of peppering in the characters, and he, Martin is in it just enough for you not to yeah to suspect. Whereas the movie, it's a, the complete other direction. Martin is another main character, and in the book, Henrik is CEO of the Wenger Corporation the entire time, whereas in the movie, Henrik Wenger is retired at the start. Has long been retired, Yes, and Martin is running the company. So Martin and Henrik, or become partners in Millennium, have about halfway through the film, and so Martin becomes an even bigger character because he's actively communicating with Blinkwist about Millennium. And so, yeah, they, they go in the complete other direction. They play on your expectations of knowing that there's something up with Stellan Skarsgård, but the beauty of the story is that it actually isn't a serial killer movie. I mean, it has serial killer in it, and that's a big part of it but then it turns into Harriet's journey after it and two and a half hour movie but Martin dies I think around the two hour mark yeah the only thing that I had a problem with with Martin was that it was too much of a reveal when Blumquist goes to Martin's house and you hear that screaming he goes to his well, you... house for a dinner party and like there's like clearly a woman well, screaming. No, the the first time I watched it, what it, I, I like I didn't catch it the first time. Yeah, I And mean, I thought it was so creepy maybe... the second time knowing that he was the I guess maybe going into it knowing that he has someone in his torture basement 
I have two notes on that. One, I thought that was my favorite scene in the entire really? film. I was just I like, thought, uh, that I don't know. gave me goosebumps to know that. So knowing he was the killer, knowing that that sound that sounds like wind is actually a human scream. I see. And I this, thought they could have going... dialed it back and made it sound a little more like wind because oh. I thought it was like just very obviously a scream. I like if I was sitting at a dinner. And I heard that, I'd be like, I'm fucking out. That was I, a scream. Like, that would have been so obvious. But that's where I, dis- I disagree with you. I okay. think it's the... It, I'm getting chills just talking okay. about it. Like, imagine going to a dinner party. Well, that's my point. Because I think it was so obvious that that was a scream. Rather than, like, the wind coming through a but, door. But, but then this ties into my second point of Fincher playing with you, knowing that you are already on to this guy just from him being cast. Like, yeah. you're already on to Stellan Skarsgård. Or you've already read the book, yeah. Right. Like, you're already on to him, and the beauty of the story is that of it just being a facet of it, and then something else entirely coming out of it. Like, this is a very unique story, mm-hmm. that of, like, a murder mystery that turns into a serial killer mystery, that turns into a missing person disguising themselves as another person mystery, that turns in the... I mean, it's there's incest. Yeah. Like, not even to mention that. I, that's, that's, I was going to talk about that, but you, you brought it up all on your own. But speaking of Martin and his place... I think the best scene and the best line, uh, another one of the best scenes, is when... Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, this line might give me cr- the shivers again. Because it absolutely destroyed me when we were watching it. After Bloomquist gets shot, both he and Lisbeth separately yeah. find photographic evidence that Martin was on the island the day of the accident and the day of Harriet's disappearance, meaning that Martin lied to them as to where he was on the day... Further meaning that he must be involved somehow. And that, that's Which is an- kind of a bait and switch because he's not even involved. Right. Like he is, he's the reason she left, but he didn't murder her. Right. That's- which is a fantastic twist. That yes. he doesn't even know what happened to his sister. Exactly, yeah. Bloomquist deduces that Martin must be involved. So he climbs up to his glass house mm-hmm. <laughs> up on the hill in Hedeby Island. And Martin comes home as... Blunquist is trying to escape, but unfortunately Blunquist falls, gets Martin's attention, and they Martin invites him back into the house, and Blunquist has to go in because it would look weird if he just said no, and that well, would that, arouse suspicion. Well, that's the thing. Martin knows how to manipulate people's feelings of yeah. being rude. Yes. And he talks about that, too, in the basement, how he's like, the, the fear of offending is stronger than the fear of death. Mm-hmm. That that line also just gave me shivers because that's that's how a lot of male predators get women to or entice women into unsafe situations by being like, oh, like you don't want to be rude, have this drink. I'm just trying to be nice. Yeah. Right. I'm just trying to invite you to a party. I'm just trying to get you to feel safe around me. Yes. So he knows how to do that really well because he, he not only does it to women, he's clearly can do it to Blancfist. Yeah. So the line that we want to talk about is when Martin is forcing Blunquist into the basement with a handgun. He's talking about the gun he used to get the shot off at him. And uh, Blunquist says, it didn't work. I'm here. And Martin says, oh, Mikael, it did work. You're here. Yeah. Oh my God. Not in the book, but a perfect, perfect. line. That so kind of good. flew over my head in the book. I didn't get why Martin would try to shoot. Well, at I think him. he, if he had killed him, he would have been happy. Yes, I, I guess. Mean, yeah. It was just kind of a like a thrilling moment in the book because yeah. then we don't know who's shooting at him. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. like he said, it doesn't matter if I killed you then or if I killed you now. Yes. Like, he's very confident that he's going to be able to murder yeah. him. Steve Zellian. Yeah, Steve Zellian is such a brilliant writer. So that, that's a great line. I'm surprised this wasn't nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too. That, I mean, I guess this is just going back to Martin, but he's such a coward. As soon as Lisbeth hits him with a golf, golf club, club, he's out like a shot he runs away he's got that entire basement that he could use to kill her all he had really had to do was like close the door and kind of lock her down there and like you know but he runs immediately and then kills himself by driving on the ice and flips his car yeah i yeah in the book he drives directly into 
right uh tractor trailer in the movie Lisbeth does, he's more or less, he's trying to escape and Lisbeth does a maneuver in front of his car with her motorcycle on the bridge and then dives away at the last possible second and Martin doesn't see the end of the bridge and flips. I am a little disappointed that the explosion that happens when Martin crashes was CGI. It's very apparent that it's not real flames. And I know Fincher, he's notorious for putting VFX, state-of-the-art VFX in his films, but in 2011, just the flames do not look That's convincing. Funny. I didn't notice that, but maybe I will. I noticed. I noticed it when I first watched it. I noticed it this time. I, I think for a movie that's so technically proficient and precise and beautiful and well made to have these CG flames, I just thought it was kind of weak. It's just very unlike Fincher to have something that's not refined. Mm-hmm. So. That's that's another note I have for that. But yeah, Fincher's also known for his films being very cold and very matter-of-fact. And you can't get very much more matter-of-fact than Daniel Craig approaching the actress playing Harriet and going, Hello, Harriet. It's like there's no score behind it, no nothing. It's just very like, bam, it's there. And in a lesser movie, they'd have the music swell. Mm. It would be this big moment. But in Fincher's film, it's just like, bam, a line, and then that's the reveal. Mm -hmm. Like, that's it. Yeah. It's funny, we've already talked about how type A he is about his shots. I just wanted to give a little shout out to one of my favorite moments in the movie where we see Blomqvist coming into his apartment and getting something to eat, and he reaches on top of his refrigerator and knocks a bottle of water off the top and Daniel Craig like leaps like cat leaps across to like catch Catch the water bottle right before it falls and puts it back on top and all I was thinking was like I feel like he just didn't want to do this shot again he's like there's no way I'm letting that water bottle fall (laughs) because I'm just gonna have to retake that scene like 500 extra times if I don't catch it right according to IMDB that was improvised or rather that was a mistake and Daniel Craig caught the water bottle and David Fincher kept going with the camera and appreciated Craig's grace. So Oh yeah, he's he, like a ballerina in that yeah. moment. It's oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I just again wanted to give another shout out to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, two of the best composers in the game, next to our boy Nicholas Bretel, mm. also next to Johnny Greenwood who did Phantom Thread Thread and There Will Be Blood and did uh, Licorice Pizza, which I just watched. I recommend that film to everyone. If you're in LA or New York, definitely check that out. It's playing now, but it'll come out in wide release on Christmas Day. Yeah, but the funny thing about Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, because they're both Nine Inch Nails now, is that... Oh, which is a fun fact. When... Elizabeth goes to visit her friend. He's wearing a Nine Inch Nails shirt. Danny, yeah. Danny spotted that. Yeah. Yeah, a little nod. Yeah. What's funny is that you can always spot a Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score. They all have the, you know, the electronic Nine Inch Nails signature, but they all are different from each other. That's kind of a not very deep analysis, but they're all similar, but they're all different. Well, the opening of the movie is so interesting because what I thought of was this looks like a music video and David Fincher directed music videos in the beginning of his career so I thought that made a lot of sense it's really dark and intense but it's it's really really good and it definitely reads like a music video yeah it's scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross but they do a cover of the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin yeah and the singer is Karen O and yeah the whole sequence is just this sort of primordial tar and ooze of the subconscious it's beautiful but fincher was trying to represent a nightmare absolutely specifically lisbeth salander's nightmare it absolutely is nightmare fuel yeah and the another one of the trailers for this movie used that cover karen o's cover of immigrant song it's incredible led zeppelin obviously one of the greatest bands of all time but that cover might might be one of the best covers of all time and and trent reznor their score incredible instead of deciding of using an orchestra they went with the dissonance and tinkling bells to provide that motif of ambiance and quote stark coldness of the swedish landscape great score i want it on vinyl so wrap up with our final thoughts and uh yeah ratings let's do it go ahead yeah i guess final thoughts about the book i really like how each novel is like 
we begin really zoomed into this one woman who's had trauma afflicted onto her since day one. And then the second novel, I think it blows it out a little bit more into like structural sexism and the control that the Swedish government can put onto minors who become wards of the state. And then the third book is like another zoom out from that about like how the entire system is kind of rigged. And I think that's just Stieg Larsson's larger point with the story. And we didn't talk about how intensely sexual assault is discussed in the books. And I think that why it's important to continue to fight for women's rights Almost every single woman in the first novel is affected by sexual violence. And I think Steve Larson has a pretty clear thesis that he wants to get across. Like every single chapter almost is spliced with statistics about women in Sweden who are sexually assaulted. But loved the book, loved the movie. I would say no question, four out of four for both for me. Yeah, as I admitted before... It's a little different for me already knowing the mystery. So my writing of, yeah, it takes away a little bit of it. I I can say I still was enthralled by the central mystery of the book. I was just disappointed of how much the book isn't about that. I I didn't really care about the politics of Millennium. Anything to do with Vinistrom, I wasn't a fan of. I think it's very, uh, what it says about violence, not just in Sweden, but just in general uh, against women. It's important for everyone to read this and to mull it over. So I'm very biased and my rating is skewed, but I would go with a two and a half out of four for the book. Uh, the movie I did gain a much bigger appreciation for on this rewatch. I'm glad we watched it legally on a Blu-ray on our TV <laughs> with a sound bar. Fincher is one of the greats. Every one of his movies is just so awe-inspiring in its craft. Still slightly a little bit too long. Uh, Has a few problems, but they're nitpicky problems, so I'm going three and a half out of four for the movie. And my last comment is that my cousin, Abby, lives in Sweden. So, hi, Abby. Stole. Skull. Skull. (laughs) (laughs) We were born on the same day, like 11 hours apart from each other. Wow. She's from Pennsylvania, and I'm obviously from California, but so that's kind of fun. I haven't seen her in a long time, but <laughs> she lives in Sweden. And Shout out, it, Abby. So maybe she'll listen. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to another killer, ooh, killer episode of Film is Lit. This is our Christmas season, so we'll be back next week with a famous Christmas story, The Green Knight. <gasps> Woo! Famous for centuries. Yes infamous for centuries yeah and we're covering the 2021 adaptation directed by david lowry starring dev patel so oh, I cannot i cannot, cannot wait for that wait to re-watch that and we're gonna have a special guest on and a returning or, guest exactly yeah so tune in for that but until then we'll see you on the next one